Welcome to Round Rock Church of Christ. We're glad you're listening. If you're in the Austin area, we'd love to have you join us this Sunday at 8.30 or 10 a.m. Or you can check us out and watch online at roundrockchurch.us. May God bless you as you seek Him, and may He use this message to give you exactly what you need. The first time I ever spoke here at Round Rock Church of Christ, some of you were here. It was July 5th, 2015 which this coming Tuesday will be seven years ago to the day. Some of you who were here are thinking, wow, that guy was here seven years ago. And the rest of you are thinking, 2015 was seven years ago? I was a Bible major at Abilene Christian University. I was classmates with Zane. That's how the two of us met. And Justin Gerhardt took a leap of faith on me. He hired me as his preaching intern for that summer uh, after my junior year. I didn't tell anybody this when I was the intern here, uh, so I need to get this off my chest today and let you guys know. That summer, something, something was off with me. Let me just put it that way. Something felt wrong. I felt called to ministry, and this church couldn't have possibly been more welcoming to me, more encouraging to me, but that first sermon on July 5th, as I stood up here preaching, I started feeling anxious, and honestly, I started feeling really hot. It gets hot up here. If any of y'all have ever been up here during service, there's lights, everybody's looking at you and you just start getting hot. And I couldn't even hold the papers in my hand because the shaking was audible, okay? The people in the back row could probably hear my pages fluttering. Some of you were here that day, like I said, seven years ago. And if you're sitting there thinking, what did he talk about that day? That makes two of us. I have no idea. Now, I'm about... Fair warning, I'm about to overshare. You've been warned. This is definitely TMI, too much information, but here we go. I get to the end of my first ever sermon here on this stage, and I am not doing okay. All right, I'm nervous, I'm insecure on the inside, sure, but also like in my my body, I'm not feeling okay. I'm seeing spots, I'm kind of sweaty, I have no idea what I'm saying, and the second I'm done talking, we all start singing a song, And I walk straight down this middle row, out back into the lobby, into the men's bathroom, right over there, and I throw up in a toilet. (laughs) Too much information, I warned you. Two quick things. First, that was seven years ago. The bathroom has been cleaned many times since then, so (laughs) the statute of limitations has expired. Second, cross my heart, that is not going to happen today. Don't worry. (laughs) Feeling great. Maybe it's because I never told anybody that story before. Or maybe just by God's miraculous power, but you all have invited me back several times over the years to study God's worth together as a family, and it's so good to be back again this morning. Every time I set foot in this church, including so far today, I'm so blessed by your hospitality and the love that you have for each other that anybody walking into this building can feel. And God reminds me again and again that a calling to ministry of whatever kind that turns out to be is a complex process and a beautiful process. I'm sure a lot of you have experienced this as well in your own lives, twists and turns as you're trying to find your own calling and what God has for you, moving down unexpected paths. It's a delightful mystery. In a lot of ways, my journey has been characterized by a single word, and it's a word you just heard a minute ago during the reading of Scripture, a a word in Matthew 14. The word is if. If you're not already there, turn to Matthew 14 with me. That's where we'll be today. So, starting in verse 27, um, and then we'll go from there. The disciples are out on the lake. They've been rowing all night, and they can't get across. And all of a sudden, they see someone out there or something out there standing on the water. And when they see it, 
their leading theory is it's probably a ghost. And after Jesus says, no, guys, don't be afraid. It's me, Jesus. Peter's response to him is the key to understanding this story. Look what Peter says. Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Now, this is a strange, did this strike you as strange? This is a strange thing to ask. You see somebody standing on the water. You're not sure whether it's somebody you know or a ghost. And you're thinking, how could I verify the identity of this being on the water? Well, he could have said, why don't you take a few more steps towards me? Then I'll be able to see you. But that's not what he says, uh, right? I, you can think of some less dangerous ways to verify. But he says, tell me to get out and come to you. It's a strange request. Peter asks whether he can join in the miracle that he's witnessing. To understand why he says this, to understand the key to this story, what we need to understand is that word he used, the word if. If is my favorite word in the English language. If means in the event that, allowing that, or on the assumption that, according to Google. By the way, my second favorite word in the English language is one I loved introducing while we lived in California. It's yaldov, okay? There's three apostrophes you all would have. If y'all have known it was going to rain, y'all have brought your umbrellas. I say it as often as I can. Anyway, my favorite word is if, and I'll tell you why. The word if is powerful. When you say the word if, what you do is you instantly activate your imagination and you create a new world. When the word if appears in any sentence, it drops a fork in the road of reality. On one side of the fork, a condition is satisfied, and on the other side, it's not. Here's an example. If my wife and I go to the store to get a pint of Bluebell ice cream, then I'm going to get Buttercrunch because it's the best flavor of Bluebell. Now, that hasn't happened yet. It probably will. But what I can do here, you see, is use the word if to create a hypothetical future reality in which we go to the store and we're standing in the bluebell aisle. Then I can inhabit that reality. I can look at the flavors in my mind and ponder, if I was there, what kind would I want? You can imagine, though, how serious that word if can be. If I marry that person. If I take that job. If I ever run into that old friend again. If is a word that lets us launch out into a possible future world and imagine what could happen there. And here in verse 28, Peter says, Lord, if it's you standing out there on the water, tell me to come to you. Tell me to walk on the water. Tell me to do something impossible. My life, whenever I first walked into this church about seven years ago, was at a crossroads based on this word, if. Was I going to trust God to call me, to equip me, and then to lead me on whatever path he had planned for me in my life? I'm sure some of you are standing at a similar crossroads or have in your life. Was I going to trust God even if his plan didn't make sense to me at the time? Even if I felt unworthy to be the person to carry out his plan? Even if I was sure that God was wrong when he picked me? And I was so scared I couldn't even hold my notes in my hands because I was shaking too much. The reason is because I was asking the wrong if. What if I'm wrong? What if I fail? What if I'm not good enough? And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, he thinks if Jesus is really the Son of God. And that's what unlocks the door. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about him. 
If he is who he says he is, we can do impossible things. So that's the first thing we need to grasp about this story is the word if and what that can mean in our own lives. See, Jesus, he never did miracles that were pointless, right? He never did any miracles just to show off. Every time he did it, he was revealing more about himself. And this miracle, that's so obvious, right? He didn't have to do this. He made them get into the boat and leave. Why didn't he get in the boat with them? He waited till they were out in the middle. Then he chased them out on the water. He could have caught another boat the next day. He could have walked around the lake like every other human being ever had before him. No, he was making a point here. He wanted to teach them a lesson about who he is. If you look earlier in the chapter, you'll see why. If you're looking at Matthew 14 on your Bible, uh, during the afternoon before this night, okay, that's earlier in the chapter, we can see what happened. Jesus teaches a crowd that's gathered to hear him, a crowd of about 5,000 people all day, They're very far away from any towns or villages, and as it starts to get dark, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, you need to send the crowd away so that they can get some food. Now look at verse 16. Let Jesus' reply here sink in. He says, these people don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. You give them food. Jesus is asking his disciples here to perform a miracle. That's the only way this command makes any sense. They don't have any food with them. They don't have anywhere nearby where they can get it. So when Jesus says, you give them something to eat, what he's saying is, you do a miracle, miraculously create some food for all these people to eat. At this point in the story, Jesus has already commanded his disciples to do miracles, and they've done it, right? In chapter 10, Jesus tells the disciples, go out and heal the sick, drive out demons, raise the dead, and they do. But those were all things they'd already seen Jesus do before. Jesus had already healed the sick. They'd already watched Jesus drive out demons. They'd already seen Jesus raise the dead. And so when he told them to do those things, they'd seen it. They knew it was possible. But here, Jesus says, you give them something to eat. And that's a miracle they've never seen. He's asking them to take the next step, to believe in something they haven't seen before. And the disciples, they completely fumble the ball. They say, that's impossible. We don't have enough food. All we have are these five pieces of bread. Like, there's no way we could feed these people. Those other miracles that we've all done, raising the dead, that's fine. But this food, no way. Nobody could ever do that. And of course, Jesus does. He steps in, he multiplies the bread and the fish, and he miraculously feeds the whole crowd. He steps in and shows them, yet again, this is power on a whole new level, and you're welcome to join me. All you have to do is believe. And that brings us to the first word of our text today. Look at verse 22. The first word of our story is immediately. Immediately. The very next thing after the feeding of the 5,000 is this story out here on the lake. Two of Jesus' most famous miracles that he ever did happened on the same day in history, and that's no coincidence. The disciples have been empowered to do miracles, but they're still doubting. They're still second-guessing. And so Jesus carefully sets up another miracle, and in this context, it starts to look a lot like a second chance. So let's take it from the top. Now pay attention here to the details in the light of the disciples' story so far. Look at verse 22. Immediately, right after the disciples failed the test with this latest miracle, immediately Jesus made them Now that word made every time is translated forced or compelled. I picture him just shoving them into the boat. All right, you couldn't figure that out. Here we go. Get in the boat and start rowing. We're, We're doing this again. He made them 
get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side of the lake while he dismissed the crowd that he just fed. Now, fast forward to verse 25. They're out on the lake. Jesus comes walking towards them. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were encouraged. They were happy. They knew exactly who it was because who else in the near vicinity usually does impossible things? No, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. Of course, there's only two options when you see something walking on water, right? It's either Jesus or it's a ghost. And in their exhaustion, the disciples fail another test. They give way to fear. But listen to the words of Jesus Christ here in verse 27. Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Now, this is a triple repetition. Jesus says exactly the same thing three times in a row. Don't give way to fear because fear will blind you to the miracles you're capable of. Now, take courage and don't be afraid. They say that literally, but the most powerful synonym in what Jesus called out through the wind while standing there on the surface of the waves was, it is I. Think about what that means. If it's a ghost there on the water, they have every reason to be terrified. But if it's Jesus, if it's really God-made flesh, if it's the same one who drove out demons, healed the sick, raised the dead, multiplied food, if it's really him, if. And Peter has the same thought. Lord, if it's you. Tell me to come to you on the water. Peter sees the crossroads in this situation. He sees the if. He knows the command from Jesus to be fearless, to be courageous, is only possible if that person standing out there on the lake is the Son of God. And all of a sudden, Peter's voice cuts through the howling wind back to that solitary man standing over the water. That same voice that reacted to Jesus' first miracle, here on this same lake, here at the Sea of Galilee, when Peter and Jesus first met with, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man and I'm not worthy, now rings out over the same waters with, Lord, tell me to come to you. What changed in Peter's life? Well, just like me, and I hope just like you, Peter encountered the word if in the person of Jesus Christ. Like I said, if is my favorite word because it instantly activates your imagination. It throws you out into a potential future reality. And all of a sudden, this timid little depart from me, Lord Peter, speaks the word if, not to create a condition, but to recognize a crossroads, to identify a choice that's standing there in front of him on the water, and he's ready to make his choice. What changed? Years. Peter has watched Jesus in action. He's spent time with him. He's grown to love him. He's done miracles on borrowed power, and now he's ready to make his decision. He fumbled the ball earlier today. No question. He didn't believe that he could multiply the bread when Jesus asked him to. But now he's had 12 long hours of rowing into the wind to relive that moment, to wonder what could have happened if he just swallowed his doubts and actually tried. And Jesus gives Peter the same answer that he'll give you. Come. And Peter does it. He looks out at the figure of Jesus standing firm on the lake and his eyes quit seeing the waves. He listens to the fearless voice saying, come, and his ears quit hearing the wind. He climbs over the side of the boat. 
And his eyes, his ears, his heart are fixed on Jesus Christ. His faith stepping out, not against reason, not against science, but stepping out beyond what reason and science can know. A true faith that embraces the massive dimension of reality that our five senses cannot perceive. The if of Jesus dropped a fork in the road for Peter, for the disciples, for me, for you. And in the end, choosing the right path will require what we call a leap of faith, not a blind faith, an informed decision to trust the one who has proven himself again and again to be God. Not a random faith, but a choice to throw off the chains of pride and admit that we're not all-knowing. Jesus arrives at the intersection of what we cannot explain but cannot deny and demands that we make a choice. And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, then I choose to believe that I can follow you and do anything. And Jesus gives him the same answer he'll give you. He'll give you, yes. I know this is true because this is what Jesus did for me. The first time I walked up here to this podium and turned around to face you in July of 2015, in a lot of ways, I was stepping out onto a sea of Galilee of my own. That was the hardest summer of my life. I never told any of you that. But I was losing a fight with depression in my own heart. I was finding it hard to get up some mornings. Some of you know what that's like. I was finding it impossible to find joy and happiness during the day. I was losing battles in my heart on every possible front against sinful habits, selfish thinking. I was a preaching intern at this wonderful church, surrounded by loving people who had no clue what I was feeling and what I was fighting. And I stood up here and I got physically sick just thinking about the idea of somebody like me being the guy up on the stage trying to tell you what the Bible means, who God is, and what he wants. God wasn't going to use somebody like me for ministry. There was no chance. God made a mistake. You know the craziest part of all this? I was preaching about this story. I knew as soon as Zane asked me to come and speak this morning and fill in for him, I knew exactly what I wanted to talk about. The text for that first sermon that I ever preached in my life here on this stage in July 2015 was Matthew 14, a story about Jesus and Peter walking on water, a story about miracles. It's a story about when Jesus proved to his terrified disciples that they could do impossible things. And in my own life that summer, I was desperate for a miracle. But unlike Peter, I didn't know how to ask for one. Now, eventually, God moved heaven and earth. He used a lot of you to do it to free me from what I was going through. But at the time, I was so blinded by Satan's lies about me, enslaved by my secrets, a prisoner of my pride, that I could stand up here and preach about Peter saying, Lord, if it's you, tell me to join you in a miracle, but then run away in shame because I didn't believe it was really him. I didn't believe Jesus was who he said he was. I thought God's power had finally met its match when it came to using me. When it came time to preach again that summer, and again, And again, and Satan kept playing the same old tricks, whispering his same old lies. Jesus showed up for me. He kept doing the same thing for me that he did for Peter, the same thing that he'll do for you. He kept reminding me who he is. Take courage, it is I. He kept catching me when I fall and take my eyes off of him and look at the wind and the waves. He kept telling me not to be afraid. I don't mind standing up here and telling you all of this now, 
because the failures in my past have no power over me since Jesus saved me. When Satan starts telling me again and again, even this morning, how unworthy I am to stand up here, I just answer, yeah, of course. Yes, I'm unworthy. But Jesus Christ has called me, and he is worthy. He came into my life and saved me. He conquered the sin and darkness in my heart. He's given me power and courage and love when I never thought I could feel those things. I've experienced so many miracles in my life, and I can think back on them, times that he showed up for me. I can flip through those memories like a photo album. I can remember who Jesus has proven himself to be in my life, and I know that the friend who has been faithfully working miracles for me for years is not going to start letting me down tomorrow. He's taught me not to step out of the boat on my own, but to say, Lord, if it's you, if you're who you say you are, then I know I can do anything. I love having the chance to come here and read this story again with you because I want to ask you about your own Sea of Galilee. When you hear Jesus inviting you deeper and higher into his miracles, but you look out over the side of that boat down into those deep black waters, what do you see there? What is the limit that you have placed on Jesus' power in your life? When you see the rolling waves and you feel the whipping wind, what is it that can tear your eyes off of him and make you start to sink? You may be in the howling of those winds, you hear Satan's voice reciting your past failures again and again, and it drowns out the voice of Jesus. Maybe in those rolling waves, you see your addictions and your secrets, your fears and your pride, and it starts to sweep you away. Maybe the limit that you placed on Jesus' power is your own habits. He could, he could do anything. He could raise the dead, multiply food, but he couldn't change that part of me. Maybe it's some relationship in your life. Jesus could drive out demons and heal the sick, but he could not empower me to speak the truth to this family member, this coworker, this estranged friend. No, that's where his power has met its limit. Look, here's a fact. If it's not him out there standing on the water, you don't stand a chance. You will sink. But if it's him, you cannot fall. If it's the one who saved you from your sins and set you free, who's been faithful for years, who's worked this entire photo album of miracles in your life, he's not going to start letting you down tomorrow. I know that God has used the Round Rock Church of Christ to transform hearts and lives because I'm one of them. Satan hates this church. He hates all of us and what we do here. He wants to stop this. He wants to discourage you. He wants to divide us. He wants to wear us down with apathy, with day-to-day -day struggles, with the weight of the world and discourage us. But whatever attack he's throwing our way, do you think this is the big obstacle that Jesus finally can't overcome? In our exhaustion and fear, after we've been rowing in the dark for 12 hours, we look down at that water and we wonder, maybe this is where he's met his match. If it's not him, we don't stand a chance. But if it is, we have been empowered. We have been called to do impossible things together. What has Jesus done for you? How has he proven himself in your life again and again? What are the episodes as you think through in your mind, in your own photo album of miracles, times that you prayed and he showed up, times that someone in your life needed help and he was there? That's how Peter was able to choose his direction when he faced that if of Jesus, and it's how we must choose ours too. Jesus wants you to trust him with everything. When you lose focus and fall, he'll be there to lift you back up.
Because if it's him standing out there on the water, you have everything to gain, nothing to lose, and most of all, nothing to fear. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this church, for this family, for what they've meant in my life and in so many lives here. I pray that you give everyone here courage, that you give us a spirit of power, not of timidity, but of power, that you call us higher and deeper into your love, that you challenge us with miraculous opportunities and give us the courage to follow you there. In the name of Jesus, amen.